Bibles to Deuteronomy 33 is where we will start. We're going to go all over our Bibles this afternoon, but we'll start here in Deuteronomy chapter 33. This afternoon, we're talking about the eternal security of the believer. Once you are saved, are you permanently saved? Are you temporarily saved? Are you saved based on certain conditions? Um, we're going to look at this subject tonight. So we sort of are going to enter a Bible college classroom for a little bit this evening. Um, but hopefully it'll be a lot more fun than some Bible college classrooms I've been in in the past. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would just speak to our hearts now, Lord, that you would open our truths, I'm sorry, open our minds and our hearts rather to the truths of your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be our teacher and our guide, and that you would direct us in truth and help us to be very clear um, with the word that you have given us. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as their Savior, or anyone here who's struggling today with their salvation, Lord, you would help them to come to an assurance and a confidence in, um, not in their salvation itself, but in the Savior himself. Lord, I just pray that you would speak to us now through your word, block out distractions, help us to be able to be focused, and really understand what you're saying in your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So talking about the eternal security of the believer, good doctrinal place for us to start. There's going to be four things we're going to look at this evening, four basic points. You could break down the doctrine in a number of ways, but we're going to look at four reasons. Um, you could say four reasons why I believe in the eternal security of the believer. And let's just jump right into it. The first one here is our salvation is based on the personality of God. Our salvation is based on the personality of God. Our security as believers is based on who God is. God is a merciful God. Otherwise, we wouldn't have salvation in the first place. I was listening to a preacher yesterday, and he was preaching on the passage, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And he quoted uh, a Bible college professor that had had a student come to him one day and said he was really disturbed over that passage, trying to understand why God would hate Esau. And the college professor said, well, what really disturbs me about the passage is why God would love Jacob. He said, rather than spending so much time trying to figure out why God would hate Esau, which there are some scripture passages that help us understand that, and we'll actually be looking at those in Sunday school next Sunday morning. But um, rather than focusing just on that, I think it's important to look and say, why would God save me in the first place? I know how sinful I am. One of my heroes of the faith, Brother Bud Lance, once said from the pulpit, he said, if you knew who I really was, y'all would all get up and leave. And I thought, wow, well, why do we not know about him? Then he said, and if I knew who all of you were, I would leave right now. It's amazing that we have a merciful God. We have a loving God that loves us. We have a long-suffering God. 
And when we start talking about our salvation, it's very dangerous if we start using human reasoning. Because if I use human reasoning, I look and say, how could a God who is holy, a God who has power, a God who is sovereign, how could he allow me to be saved and yet do something sinful? Surely I would lose my salvation. Surely I would be cut off. But one reason why we think that way is we don't really understand our loving, long-suffering God. God is far slower to cutting people off than we are. Somebody hurts our feelings, and boy, they're ready to, we're ready to cut them off. You know, growing up in a pastor's home, I remember times, I, I remember this one lady being offended because my mom didn't speak to her on Sunday morning. The pastor's wife didn't speak to her, and I mean, she was mad. Of course, the pastor's wife had every woman in church to talk to that day, and she just didn't make it to that lady that day. And I mean, you had a whole meeting of weeping and wailing and apologizing and all this stuff. Why? Because the pastor's wife didn't speak to her. I mean, it was big. I mean, it was, um, had my mom not acted fast in trying to restore that relationship, this lady was ready to cut off. But our God is not that way. But there's another aspect of God's personality that I think is extremely important in understanding our salvation, and that is that we serve an eternal God. An eternal God. God is loving, he's long-suffering, but he is eternal. There's some words that are used in Scripture explaining our salvation. The same word is used explaining God. If we look here in Deuteronomy 33 and verse number 27, 33, 27, look what it says. Um, the eternal God. What word is used there to describe him? Eternal. The Hebrew word eternal, the best we can define the Hebrew word is from fading to fading. Kind of like from mist to mist. As far as you can see this way and as far as you can see that way. That was the way that the Hebrews would describe this concept of eternal. They couldn't wrap their mind around it. And now we understand more as we've come to the New Testament and we understand eternity as being with no beginning, no ending, the eternal God. The God who had no beginning, no ending, is thy refuge. And underneath are the what? The everlasting arms. And he shall thrust out the enemy from before thee and shall say, destroy them. So we have an eternal God that has offered his people salvation. And when we get to the New Testament, if we turn to John chapter 3, we see Jesus, some of Jesus' teaching on the subject of salvation. And in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Speaking of how Jesus would die, he would be lifted up on that cross and be crucified for us. So that as Moses had lifted up that serpent, that was a picture of Jesus Christ being lifted up for us. And of course, anyone who looked at the serpent, that brazen serpent up on that pole, they would be delivered, they would be saved from the fiery serpent bites that they were getting and the people were dying. So he said, just as Moses lifted up that serpent, Jesus is going to have to be lifted. That whosoever believeth in him, whosoever believeth, puts their faith in him, should not perish, but have what kind of life? Eternal life. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, there it is again, believeth. That's the Greek word for putting faith in. Whosoever believeth or puts their faith in him should not perish, but have what kind of life? Everlasting life. So he uses it, it's translated in two different ways here, but it's the same Greek word, um, enios, which means without beginning, without ending. Jesus said, those who believe in me receive eternal, unending life. Look at verse 36. He that believeth on the Son hath what? Everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. So he said, if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, whoever believes in him, whoever puts their faith in Jesus Christ, what he did for us on the cross, he said, we have eternal or everlasting life, life without end. Look over at Hebrews chapter nine. We should never take a doctrine. We should never take one verse of scripture and base a doctrine on it. We use that principle from the law in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. And so we want to look not just in one verse, not just in one book of the Bible. I started to practice years ago. If I believe something, I want to find it in every part of the Bible. So I'd go to the law, see if it's there. Go to the judges, see if it's there. Go to the poetic books, see if it's there. Go to the prophets, see if it's there. Go to the gospels, see if it's there. Go to the epistles, see if it's there. And if it didn't show up at all of them, then it might be something shaky. But what I find is the strong truths of the word of God show up throughout the book. Hebrews 9 and verse number 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, obtaining what kind of salvation having obtained eternal redemption for us. Jesus Christ obtained eternal redemption for us. Now, some say that this is a dangerous Here's other verses. I think they're in your notes there that you can read later. There are those who say this is a dangerous doctrine because if you teach eternal security, then people will find that as an excuse to sin because then I can live however I want and end up going to hell even though I believed in Jesus. Well, first of all, we should never believe a doctrine or be afraid to believe a doctrine based on how someone else might take it. Truth is truth, no matter what somebody else does with it. So if you take the fact that once you're saved, you're always saved, and you say, now I can go out and sin however I want, shame on you. That's not the point here. There's a whole faction of churches in the United States that teach, um, um, many of them teach that we are not eternally saved. Lauren, I've worked with, in a number of um, black communities around the southern United States, and over time and time and time again, we find that the Baptist churches in many of these African-American communities don't believe in eternal security. And as you listen, you start understanding why. It's actually a tool to try to keep the kids out of the gangs, off of the drugs, and out of crime. 
So the children come to our Bible clubs and our discipleship clubs, and they want to get saved. They pray to receive Christ. The next day they come back, they want to get saved again. And when you question them, why? Well, why do you want to get saved? Didn't you get saved yesterday? Oh, yeah. Well, why do you need to get saved today? Because I sinned yesterday, or I sinned last night, or I sinned this morning, or a few minutes ago, I hit a girl during the middle of Bible clubs. You know, and they know they sinned, and they got to get saved because they're going to go to hell if they don't. And it took some time, but Laura and I started understanding that this was being used to try to keep the children from getting into crime. But guess what? It doesn't work. Why? Because it has turned it into a works salvation. There was a a black church in New Orleans that we used to work with. It was a Bible church. They would come up to our church on the North Shore um, of New Orleans, and um, their pastor would preach, and they would bring the special music and stuff. We would have a really great time, and then we boring white people would go down, and my dad would preach. Now, my dad would get wound up. they start hollering and amen and carrying on, and my dad, like it chainsaw motor. He really gets to going. But, um, but we'd get up and sing our songs, and boy, we'd, we'd sing our boring white songs, and they'd get to hollering and shouting and standing up and glory to God, and we had a great time together. But one day, they started correcting my mom down. We'd feed each other when we'd go to the churches, and um, one day, they started correcting my mom. They said, y'all are not Baptist. My mom said, yes, we are. No, you're not. So they, they kept, all right, you need to change the name of your church. You're a Bible church. You're not a Baptist church. Finally, the women explained why. They said, y'all believe in eternal security, and Baptists don't believe in eternal security. And my mom said, yes, most Baptists do believe in eternal security. But what it was is in their communities, they were used to that the, the doctrine of work, getting saved by it's Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But you have to keep doing it over and over and over because you have a loophole. If you sin, you might lose what God has given you. But my salvation is not based on my personality. It's not based on my ability to keep it. My salvation is based on the fact that I have an eternal God that has given me eternal life. At salvation, we enter an eternal relationship with an eternal God. For me, I could stop right there and be satisfied. But let's go to point number two. Our salvation is based, first of all, on the personality of God. Secondly, it's based on the promises of God. The promises of God. Our security is based on what God has said. That's the reason why we generally don't go out and pass out cards with prayers on them for people to pray to be saved. Why? Because there are no magic words that will save you. There is no specific prayer you can pray to be saved. We have to put our faith in Jesus Christ. I've heard some interesting um, prayers prayed. Somebody pray a prayer and I think they didn't get it. I don't know what that prayer was, but that was not a salvation prayer. But boy, you realize that instantly something just changed in that person's life, and you are not going to be able to convince them they're not saved. Why? Because they know they just placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And you t- I had told them it's not about the words they said. And they got it. 
I've seen little bitty kids. I've seen five-year-olds pray and put their faith in Jesus Christ, praying things like, Jesus, please wash away my sins with your blood. My grandfather, when he got saved, he told God, he said, God, if you don't save me, I'm going to hell. That was his sinner's prayer. It was that simple. What did the publican say in the, um, in the temple? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You say, but he didn't say he believed in Jesus and that Jesus, died. Jesus hadn't died yet, okay? But Jesus said that he went home that day justified. Well, I'm not going to walk into the temple and tell that publican, you're not saved because you didn't say the right words. Because I would be arguing with Jesus Christ, who said the man walked home, what? Justified that day. Our salvation is based on the promises of God. It is based on what he has said, not what I have said. Look back at John chapter 3, going back there again, foundational verse about eternal security. John chapter 3, back to 15 again, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is a promise Jesus is giving. It is a, yes, it is a condition promise verse. What is the condition? Believe. And what will God do? He gives everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There's the promise of God again. John 5 and verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. We have the testimony of the Old Testament. If you'll look back at Psalm 105, Psalm 105, I do not in any shape, form of the imagination believe in replacement theology. Replacement theology, Pastor Joe mentioned it in Sunday school this morning, is the belief that the church has replaced Israel. God is done with Israel. He's put them away. They're eternally gone as a nation, and they've been replaced by the church. Old Testament prophecy just doesn't work out right. If we actually do that and listen to the words of Paul, God is not done with them yet. He does offer stern warnings, but he says that God's not done with him yet. Let's look at a couple passages here. Psalm 105, verse number six. O ye seed of Abraham, his servant, ye children of Jacob, his chosen. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He hath remembered his covenant. God made a covenant. And how long will God remember this covenant? Forever. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations. Which covenant he made with? Who did he first make the covenant with? Abraham and his oath unto Isaac. So it's confirmed to the second generation. And then verse 10, and confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law and to Israel for and what kind of covenant? Everlasting covenant. So if I believe in replacement theology, I cannot really believe in eternal security. Because if God's going to take Israel and put them away and never restore them back to himself, well, you and I could probably lose our salvation. Because if God doesn't keep his promises to Israel, 
you can count, he's not going to keep his promises to us. But he is a covenant-keeping God. He calls it here, what kind of a covenant with Israel? An everlasting covenant. Some of you were in Sunday school a few weeks ago and we studied Hosea. Let's look over there again. Hosea chapter 13, God is telling the nation that they're going to be taken into captivity. He gives the illustration of Hosea. Hosea's wife, Gomer, went away. She was unfaithful to him, and she got so wicked that she ends up in slavery itself. Her husband has to go back, buy her back, and God is illustrating to the nation of Israel, this is what I've done. I love you. I have an eternal relationship with you, but you have turned away from me. There is judgment coming. You're going away into captivity but I am going to take you back. I'm going to buy you back. Um, Look at verse number nine, Hosea 13 and verse nine. O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. Israel's problem was not with God forgetting his covenant. They were destroying themselves. Look at 14 verse one. O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say unto him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. Asher shall not save us. Verse number four, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely for mine anger is turned away from him. Verse seven, they that dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. And that we are seeing today as Israel is returning to their land. And one day they will enter back into that love relationship with God once again. But it is Israel that stepped out of it. It was Israel that ran away from God, but God is faithful. God is loving. God is still there. He is still keeping his covenant with them. But for the age or the dispensation in which we live, we live in the time of the church. And Paul explained why we entered into the church age when the Jews rejected Jesus Christ. But Jesus will return. He will set up his kingdom in Israel. And we will see again one day all all believers we're going to be able to see that happen one day. We, some of us may be standing up in the grandstands of heaven watching down. Figure, we probably all will be that are saved. We'll be standing up there. We'll be watching down as God proves once again that he is, as 1 Corinthians 1.9 calls him, a faithful God. 1 Corinthians 1.9, Paul says, God is faithful Our salvation is based on the fact that we have a God who keeps his promises. Look at Hebrews chapter 13. We memorized part of this in the children's service last month. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, beginning at verse 5, let your conversation be without covetousness. And be content with such things as ye have. What is going to be the basis of a Christian's contentment? He said, for he hath said, I will never, what? Leave thee, nor forsake thee. We have the promise of God that he will never leave us. He will always be with us. And then we come to the memory verse from last month's children's service, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. 
and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. We have a faithful, loving God who keeps his promises to us. So our salvation is, first of all, based on the personality of God, who he is. He is the eternal God, and he offers us eternal salvation. Secondly, our security as believers is based on the promises of God. The promises of God. Our salvation is based on what God has said, not what we have said. And number three, it is based on the presence of God. Our security is based on where God resides, where God lives. Now we all go in heaven, in heaven is where God lives, where God lives. Okay, that's based on John 14, the beginning of it. But God also dwells with us. He lives with us, and Jesus explained what was going to happen after he ascended back to the Father. John 14, beginning in verse 16, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Another comforter, and he will abide. This word abide is interesting. The Greek word translated abide here means to take up residence, to move in. But it's not the idea of doing what I do. I rent my house. It is a temporary contract which I have to live in the house where my family lives. And we realize one day we may not get to live there anymore. Every place we've lived, I've moved in, figuring I'm going to stay there in that house for a long time. And it hasn't always happened thus. But the Holy Spirit is not a temporary resident like I am. He is a permanent resident. This word abide means to move in with no plans of leaving. In other words, he's bought this house and he's moving in. He plans on staying there. In fact, Hebrews 9 verse 14 calls him the eternal Spirit, any, any um, characteristic that we have of God the Father can be said of God the Spirit as well. Why? Because they are one. And the eternal Spirit moves in. He takes a permanent resident in us for how long? Until we do something wrong. Until we say something wrong. How long? He may abide with us forever. There's that word again, no beginning, no ending. He moves in to stay. He explains this in another way. Paul does in Ephesians chapter one. We read from this a few minutes ago, Ephesians chapter one, (coughs) beginning in verse 13, in whom ye have trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit was given to us as believers. The moment we got saved, the Holy Spirit came to be a seal in us. The idea of this word seal, it's 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 to stamp something or mark something with a signet. A signet would be like a ring that an old-time king might have or some kind of ruler might have, and they would have their seal on it, their mark. I was looking at some pictures today of this old ancient pottery from the early days of Israel that was made at the king's palace, and there was a signet, there was a, a mark that they would put on it, a seal, and they would mark it into the pottery, and they still have that today in a museum somewhere. 
It had been sealed. It had been marked. The seal marked ownership. It'd be kind of like today we go out and we brand cattle. We put a mark on the cattle so that we know who that cattle belongs to. I got this book out of the church library, the Wycliffe Bible Commentary. Opened up the front and there is a seal on it. There is a mark. There is a stamp, we would call it today. And it says North Belt Baptist Church. That stamp shows that this book belongs to who? North Belt Baptist Church. And the moment we got saved, we received a seal that showed that we belong to Jesus Christ. What was that? The Holy Spirit of the living God came to live within our hearts. Verse 14, he uses another phrase. He said, which is the earnest of our inheritance? That's the down payment. That's the, a deposit that God has made. Until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit at salvation comes to live within us. He comes to mark us, to, to show that we belong to the Lord. Look at Ephesians 4 and verse 30. He uses the word again, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed. For how long are we sealed? Under the day of redemption. What an awesome promise of God. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, coming to live within us when we get saved. So number one, my salvation, my eternal salvation is based on the personality of God, on who God is. He is the eternal God and he's given me eternal salvation. Number two, the promises of God. My salvation is based on what he has said, not what I have said or done. And number three, my sal eternal salvation is based on the presence of God. The fact that the Holy Spirit lives within me as proof of eternal salvation. And then number four, last of all, my salvation is based on the power of God. Our security is based on what God has the strength to do. Look at John chapter 10. John chapter 10 Jesus has talked about he was the door to the sheepfold. He talks about he's the good shepherd of the sheep. He talks about my sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me and I know them. <clears throat> Verse 28, <clears throat> he says, and I give unto them what kind of life? Eternal life. And they shall never perish. See, I know I'm not going to hell. I have confidence I'm not going to hell. Why? Because he said that those who believe in him, he gives them eternal life. They never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My father, which gave them me, is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. Then to top it all off, he said, I and the father are one. There is a unified effort of the father and the son to hold the believer eternally in their hands. Now look at this truth. I don't know that I ever noticed it like this until I was preparing for this message. All three members of the Godhead are involved in our eternal salvation. The Holy Spirit comes to permanently indwell us and seal us. The Father holds us in his hands. The Son holds us in his hand. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are involved in keeping us 
safe. They hold us in their hand. If Christ does not have the power to keep you, he never had the power to save you in the first place. This is a strong statement, but I believe it very, very much. If Christ doesn't have the power to keep me, why would I trust him to save me in the first place? Oh yeah, I sent my son to die for you. He suffered a terrible, excruciating death, worse than any other person's ever, ever, ever suffered. He paid for your sin on the cross, but you've got to do certain things to keep your salvation. That doesn't even follow, that doesn't even make sense. If salvation is by grace through faith, it is all through faith. It is all through grace, and none of it is of me. 2 Timothy chapter 1, let's turn over there in conclusion. 2 Timothy chapter 1, and Paul's talking about, well, let's start reading actually in um, verse number 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but be thou partakers of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us unto an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, that w- which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, he said, I have suffered. I've been in prison. I've been beaten. Paul had suffered all kinds of persecution. He says, nevertheless, I am not ashamed. Why is he not ashamed? He said, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded. I'm fully convinced that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. And it's in response to this that he says, you hold fast, sound words. Anytime we see in scripture that we're supposed to hold on, that we're supposed to hold fast, that we're supposed to remain faithful, that is in response to the fact that we have a God that holds us fast. So therefore, hold on to him. We have a God that keeps us. I've got a little Lego man right here. Creed, I wonder if you could come up here and help me, sir. I talked to Creed right before the service. You can come up to June. I'm going to use her next. Okay, so Creed, you told me before the service that you got saved. So who saved you? God saved you? Okay, so according to what we just read in John chapter 10, Jesus said that when you got saved, he took you, and this little Lego man is you, okay? So he took you, and Jesus took you, and he holds you in his hand. Do you like it sometimes when something scares you, and your dad picks you up and holds you? You feel safe, right? I mean, you feel safe when dad's there. Your dad's big, and he's strong, and he's tough. So you feel safe with him. Well, you know what? Jesus is even more powerful than your dad. And that's saying a lot, right? But Jesus holds you in his hand. And then he said, my father holds you in his hand. And he said, no man, that means nobody, not even you can get yourself out of God's hand now. The devil can't get you out of it. You don't have to be scared of the devil. Why? Can, can you get you out of my hand? Oh, come on. You can, you can get it. Why don't you try June? Can you... Can you get your brother out of my hand? Come on, try harder. Try harder. 
I bet Mr. Gideon could come up here. Mr. Gideon, can you come up here? Can you get Creed out of my hand? I've done this at Bible clubs and ended up bleeding, so <laughs> let's not go to that point. You know, when you get a grip on something, it can be really difficult. No matter how strong Gideon is, it's difficult to get your fingers under there to the right point to get leverage, right? To open it up. What a great illustration Jesus used. He said, I've got you. I've got you. You don't have you. I've got you. Thanks, Gideon. Jesus holds you in his hands. So do you have to trust in you to stay saved? Who can you trust in? God, so we don't have to worry about where I'm going. I'm not worried about whether I'm going to heaven or hell because I put my faith in Jesus and he holds me in his hand like he holds you in his hand. Thank you guys. Y'all can go back to your seat. What a powerful illustration. And I want to end with this statement. We are saved by an eternal, promise-keeping, triune God whose spirit permanently indwells us and seals us, while the Father and Son lovingly hold us in their all-powerful hands. This is eternal security. My security is based on the work of God. It is based on His power. I can go to sleep at night. I mean, there's a lot of things I worry about, but one of them is not whether I am going to heaven or not. Because I have come to Jesus as a little child. It is nothing good that I have done. I am not, to say I am eternally saved is not to brag on me. It is to brag on God and on his powerful hand to hold me. We're going to end with this chorus. Many of you probably know it. It's on our children's album, the I Believe album. We wrote it especially for little kids who are in neighborhoods where we have taken the gospel before. And there's no solid Bible teaching church. In fact, wrote it for children in a village where there is a strong Muslim presence. And where a lot of the Christians in town are scared of the Muslim people. And we wanted the children to have a reminder. And so I asked the Lord, give us something that's simple that the children will be able to remember that when they put their faith in him, he holds them eternally. Let's stand together, and um, those of you who know it, sing it out with me, and we'll sing it three times so that we'll be able to pick it up. Jesus holds me in his hands. Jesus holds me in his hands. I will never ever fear for I know he's always near Jesus holds me in his hands let's sing it again Jesus holds me in his hands Jesus holds me holds me in his hand. 
one more time. Jesus holds me in his hands. Jesus holds me in his hands. I will never, ever fear, for I know he's always near. Jesus holds me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this truth that you hold us in your hands. We thank you that salvation was not for us to come up with. It was not for us to buy because we never could have. It was not for us to earn because we never could have been good enough. But Lord, we thank you that a holy, loving, righteous, just, eternal God sent his son Jesus to die for us. And Lord, we thank you that for this simple truth that if we put our faith in you, that you take us in your hand, you give your Holy Spirit to indwell us. And Lord, I pray that you would help all of us to remember this truth, that we would go home and meditate on it. We would look at these other verses, that our faith would be strengthened in your almighty power. Lord, I pray especially for the kids, Lord, they would remember the Lego man in the hand that they are, as they put their faith in you, they are permanently in your hand. Lord, we thank you for this great truth, for your great love for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.